The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So since the start of this ongoing coronavirus crisis, I've been preaching on um, these lessons that we can learn uh, from this extraordinary time that we're living through. And as I shared, um, sort of in the start of this series, it's as if God had hit this giant pause button on our lives, forcing us into this extended season of living simply without all of the clutter and all of the things that normally make our lives feel so hectic, professional sports on TV and all these social events and kids' events and activities that we're constantly jumping from one thing to the next. And during this time, I've invited the church into this um, period of silence and solitude, examining our life so that when things do return to, quote, normal, uh, you can be intentional about what that new normal in our post-pandemic world ought to look like. And I'm sure many of you have seen uh, these memes that have been going around on social media about how introverts and extroverts are responding so differently to this shelter-in-place restriction imposed by the crisis. Uh, this next one says, introverts, please check on your extrovert friends. We're not okay. <laughs> Uh, recognizing how hard this is for the extroverts among us. Not that our church would know anything about that. Um, this one says introverts, uh, this one says uh, pokes fun at introverts. It says, when you find out that your normal daily lifestyle is called quarantine. <laughs> uh, it's been a running joke uh, that extro at ICC that uh, extroverts stick out like a sore thumb here uh, in our church. Because there's no doubt about it, our congregation definitely seems to skew into the direction of introversion. And so it's not surprising that a number of you have actually confessed to me that you're a bit concerned. Uh, well, well, first of all, you've actually shared with me that you've, you've been loving this shelter-in-place restriction and you know, things like the ability to work from home, to just be with your family and your family only all the time. And along with that confession has come some expressions of concern that once all of this is over, you may actually really struggle with coming back into community as a church. And so as I close out this series on lessons that we can learn from the pandemic, I want to focus on this topic of community. I hope one of the lasting lessons from this crisis is not your belief that you actually have discovered you don't think you need community, but that you're actually fine by yourself. Uh, I, I worry a bit that just these extended months of watching our worship services uh, from the convenience of your own home and at a time of your choosing may be hard to give up once the pandemic is over. I worry that this illusion of a virtual community may be more appealing to some of us than the messiness of an actual flesh-and-blood community with all of its drama, 
all of its ups and downs. Throughout this series, I've invited you to think about the values that we have embraced by living in the suburbs of America. And it's hard to recognize what these values actually are because, as I've said in a previous message, it's like the air we breathe. Uh, we're all living the same lifestyle. We're, we're all wanting the same things. We're all pursuing the same dreams. And if you lived your entire life in suburbia, it just feels like normal life. And we don't realize that the suburbs we live in are these intentionally designed communities that cater to our needs and wishes. Theaters with reclining seats. Restaurants that serve our favorite foods. School districts with the highest national SAT and ACT scores. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we transfer the same attitude to the churches that we attend and what we're looking from them. David Getz, in his book, Death by Suburb, which I've quoted throughout the series, says this, While I haven't conducted a national study, my community, and he's speaking about Wheaton, Illinois, uh, my community may boast the nation's most mobile church-going members. There are simply so many good options, depending on your life stage and worship preference. In many communities, the neighborhood church has been overshadowed by large regional churches. People commute to church. If it takes 27 minutes to get to the good preaching and good programs, it's worth it. Just as it is to cart your daughter to the better violin teacher two suburbs over. Church migration patterns tend to follow whatever church has the buzz, the, more, the quote, more biblical preacher, the newer, more authentic service with a riveting young pastor who weaves stories using live animals as props and uses technolo technology innovatively, the burgeoning youth ministry with the exotic mission trips. And so when we are looking for church to attend, the things that matter to us are things like how dynamic and engaging is the teaching, how lively and moving is the worship, how good is the children's program or the youth ministry. And listen, I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that those things actually don't matter when we're trying to decide a church. Uh, in fact, when we're looking for a church, probably those are things we ought to be concerned about. But what I'm trying to address is this. The danger as we evaluate churches like this is this subtle consumeristic mentality that shopping for churches can do to us, which basically begins to develop this mentality, where can we find a church that is going to cater to our needs and service us the way we want to be serviced by this community? You know, when I do premarital counseling, um, one of the early sessions I do with couples before they get married is to try to expose the expectations that each partner has for their future spouse. And in fact, 
I do this because even in dating seminars at churches and things like that, we're often taught to make these lists, these wish lists of all of these traits that we want our future spouse to possess. And of course, we need discernment when we're trying to pick a partner for our life. But the reason why I do this in my premarital counseling sessions is this. Your marriage is in real danger. If you enter that marriage with this mindset of all of these expectations that your spouse better meet, That's disastrous for a marriage. And the same is true, I would say, when it comes to church. It's interesting that when you actually look in the Bible itself, it says nothing, absolutely nothing about choosing the right church or about how a church might serve your best needs. The emphasis when we look in the New Testament is almost completely on how God is calling you to be a part of the reality of what he is doing in the church, of displaying his love in a community of his people. In the last two messages, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, how through the cross of Jesus, we are not only reconciled with God, but we are also reconciled with one another. And in reconciling us to God, what Paul is saying in his letter to the Ephesians is that Jesus set for us a model that we ought to imitate of what it means to serve others and love them just as he has served and loved us. In other words, the church is a community of people that is built on this common foundation of a shared experience that we are the ones who have received God's love and his mercy. And now God calls us to display that same love and mercy toward others that we do church with. Romans chapter 15, verse 5 to 7 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you. This connection between what we have received from God and what we are to give to others is made over and over again in the Bible, meaning that unless you have first experienced that love and acceptance and commitment from God, you don't know how to give it to others. And it's interesting that he says, and that is done for the glory of God. This is how God's glory will be displayed to the world. In other words, if a church's growth needs no further explanation than the fact that they run a top-notch worship service and that they are beating out the competition in the suburbs of Chicago, we don't need God to explain any of that, do we? And I don't see how that garners the attention of the world and glorifies God at all. But if a church demonstrates sacrificial, selfless love, that is something that I believe the world will take notice of and say that there is something in that community that I have not seen 
anywhere else. And so I am inviting you to, as I begin this message, just to simply reflect on what is my fundamental expectation of church. What is it that I am looking for in my church experience? And I'm trying to say that right now, the way that life in the suburbs has shaped us, it is the sense in which the world caters to me and my needs rather than I am here to give myself to this vision of church as God sees it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 to 10 says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. This is the constant emphasis of the church experience is let love be experienced among you as you do life and community with one another. You know, the New Testament writers were not naive about the struggle that every church will go through to experience this unity and love. It just doesn't happen automatically. There is a fight for this that has to take place. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14, we actually looked at this recently. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together. In perfect unity. You know, I think many of us had this false assumption that if God's love is real in the church, then there shouldn't be any conflicts. That unity should be automatic because that's what the Spirit should do, shouldn't it? But that's actually not how the Bible pictures Christian love. It is actually in the context of struggles and conflict that God's love has an opportunity to truly shine and display the reality of God's presence among his people. It's interesting how many passages about loving one another presupposes conflict and struggle with each other. That's why there is a call to bear with each other and forgive one another. Let me also say this. If our view of unity is nothing more than finding a community of people who meet all of our expectations and think just like we do, then I'm going to say again, I don't think you need to invoke God in that picture of community. He's not necessary to that equation because all it is is finding a group of like-minded people who think like you and value the things you do and are just like you. But true Christian love is when we remain committed to one another, learning how to forgive each other and bear with each other in the midst of that hurt and pain that we inflict on each other. What I'm saying is is this. If you see the church through the lens of a consumer, when that church fails to meet your expectations or disappoints you, then it's a sure sign that you need to Look for another church, isn't it? But when you see the church through the lens of the gospel, those disappointments become opportunities to display the true power of God's love. You know, for most of us, experiencing disillusionment with a church is a sure sign that you've got to find a new church. 
But Diedrich Bonhoeffer argued that disillusionment can actually be a good thing and can actually lead to spiritual growth if, as a response to that disillusionment, you decide to stay rather than flee. Because it is in that staying and that fighting for unity and love that we really discover the mystery of church and what God intends for us to experience in community with one another. Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together, only that community which enters into the experience of this great disillusionment begins to be what it should be in God's sight. The sooner this moment of disillusionment comes over the individual and the community, the better for both. Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Bonhoeffer is saying something very profound about the nature of the church. And he's saying this, is that he's saying, as much as we think in horror at the thought of being disillusioned with the church, he says it's actually a necessary step in the process of embracing the true church of Jesus Christ. Because he says that because of all of the expectations and the demands that we are all carrying around in us about what the church must be, And I don't think Bonhoeffer is saying there isn't some sense of a standard. But I think what he is saying is when we take that idealized church that's in our heads and we use it as a weapon against the church as it actually exists with all of its problems and faults, then that's when we actually become part of the problem and not part of the solution. But that disillusionment that we may experience in our church experience can lead us to a surrender of our expectations, of demanding what this church has to be and love the church that Christ died for as it actually is. Embracing your fellow members with all of their glaring faults and problems. And I think the glory of God is on greatest display in the midst of that disappointment and in the midst of that pain as we stay and love and fight for that unity that Christ has purchased with his blood. You know, in this commitment to love and accept one another, I think God can really do something beautiful in our midst. When you really think about it, almost all of the relationships that we experience in life are transactional. And what I mean by that is this, is that what drives the relationship forward is that both parties involved in that relationship, they see a benefit to themselves by being in that relationship. You want to keep your clients happy because that ensures job security for yourself in sales. You want to keep your boss happy because that gives you a better shot 
at the next promotion that will come up. You seek friendship with a particular person because by being that person's friend, it elevates your status in the eyes of others. Think about the situation of fellow parents in your kids' club soccer team. You rally together for the team, cheering them on in the sidelines. Each of parent participating in bringing snacks and drinks for halftime, carpooling to shuttle the kids back and forth to practices and games. And when you look at that relationship, it actually looks like it's more genuine camaraderie rather than transactional. Until your kid misses a critical goal, <laughs> and then the parents start giving you that look, and your underperforming child has broken the social contract and has exposed the transactional nature of even that relationship with the other parents. And the truth is, even when you start attending a new church, when you kind of feel like an outsider, those relationships, even within the church, can feel very transactional, can't they? Because you just have no basis on which to, it seems like, build something because you just don't know anybody very well. And so you, you have to initiate some transactions. So you clean up your house and you buy some hamburgers and hot dogs and you invite some church members to a barbecue and some fellowship at your house and you take a risk. Or you feel a little insecure about your athletic ability but nevertheless, you show up to the next open gym and play basketball with the guys or join the softball league. Or you have some extra tickets to a show that you got at work and you look around for another couple at the church who might be willing to go and watch the show with you. These seem in some ways very socially awkward and transactional. And it's okay. Some of that is unavoidable as you enter into relationship, new relationship with other people. But as we work through that initial awkwardness of this transactional nature of a new relationship, what I believe that the Bible pictures is the potential for something far more profound, far more powerful to begin to take place as we begin to open our lives to each other. So that what we really discover is it's not about how I benefit from you being in my life and what I can gain from this relationship, but it's truly about Christ in each of us causing us to love one another with agape love as Christ has loved us. So we love one another. A deeper kind of spiritual friendship possible only through the gospel. And so we see passages that give us glimpses of this kind of deeper relationship in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. James 5, 16. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Proverbs 27, 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 
I think this is the ultimate trajectory of community in church. Is getting to that place where I can be naked and unashamed. Where I don't, as my defense mechanism by default, have to choose hiddenness in order to be accepted in this community. Where I can confess my sins and rather than being condemned, there is a brother or a sister who will actually pray for me in that struggle. Someone who loves me enough to say things that at some moment may really cut like a knife and hurt me. And yet I know that that pain is inflicted out of genuine love and concern for me. That is the community that God desires among his people. Dave Getz, again in his book, Death by Suburb, writes of this experience that he had in one of his own friendships. Friends provide accountability as an insight that comes with being fully known over time. While we were shopping for a new car, a friend hit me with the cliche, Dave, you know the price of everything but the value of nothing. I was in my early 30s, and he, had wearied, he, and he had wearied of my thinly disguised envy. I didn't reply. I couldn't. I hated what he had just said. The comment dug its heels into my soul, though he had never brought it up again. Years later, I still think about what he said that afternoon. I can't explain fully why I, can't accept, uh, why I can accept a stinging rebuke from a friend or why it still rose around in my head today, years later. As I reflected on his confession, I thought that's just so true in my life too. The friends that I have let in most deeply in my life at some moment have probably said things that have hurt me more than anyone else. And it's weird how when I think about some of the things people have said in my past that have really stuck over years, it often came from the lips of some of my closest friends. And I realized, like, why is that? And I think it's so because I realized I have made a place in my heart for them in a way unlike any other people. And they know that. And in their love, they have taken some risks with me and said some things that at times in that moment was incredibly painful. And yet, by the fact that 15 years later, I still remember that offhanded comment that was said to me and that it still to this day is helping me to see myself in a way that truthfully I didn't see myself until that comment was made has its own redeeming work of love that is at work in me. And I want to ask you, do you know that kind of community in the community of God's people? Do you have friendships like that where you have let somebody else in so deeply that the relationship is no longer transactional, but it's about something so pure and genuine of a love that you have for each other that has developed into an incredible trust? Because I think that that is one of the primary ways that God leads us into spiritual growth. I think so often we have these moments where we just want to experience God and feel God in worship and we want to be moved emotionally and we want to sense that God is still with me. And I think one of the things that we really miss is that one of the primary ways that God shows up in our life 
is through each other. And one of the most regular and tangible ways that God has intended you to experience his love for you and his forgiveness of you and his care over you is through these spiritual friendships, not through some mystical moment of worship, but simply through brothers and sisters in Christ caring enough for one another to do that for each other. Let me close with this. There was a news event a couple months back that I think got a bit lost in all of our preoccupation with this pandemic. This guy, Darren Patrick, was a pastor who in 2002 planted a church called Journey Church, which rose to prominence as a megachurch in the St. Louis area. And he became a very rapidly rising star in reform circles like Acts 29 Network and the Gospel Coalition. But then in 2016, Patrick was fired by the Journey Church after he was found guilty of misconduct, having inappropriate meetings with a couple of women, as well as issues of abuse of power. And after that, he underwent a restoration process receiving counseling, and eventually returning to ministry in 2017 as a preaching pastor at Seacoast Church, another megachurch, this time in South Carolina. And everything seemed to have been turning around for Patrick. But then on May 8th of this year, while he was target shooting with a friend, he tragically turned the gun on himself and ended his own life. And that same week that his death was announced, this podcast of an interview done with him was released. And in that interview, Patrick spoke of how unhealthy it was for him and a group of these young, rising pastors to reach celebrity status so quickly. Book deals, speaking engagements all the fame and money, but with so little actual spiritual maturity in their character. And he confessed in this podcast that his entire focus was on managing and promoting his public image. And he confessed that in the midst of all of that ministry success, he intentionally cut himself off from anyone who could truly speak into his life. And in Patrick's own words, he said this, I stopped pursuing friendships. Another way to say that, I stopped being known. And that was the beginning of the end. What Patrick confessed was that in a season of his life, when he needed it more than ever, He chose to cut himself off from any real sense of community. As a pastor, undoubtedly, he was surrounded by people all the time, which I'm sure at least gave an illusion of community. But that's different than actually being in community with others, sharing our heart and our life with them. I think Patrick said it best himself when he said, I stopped being known. I stopped being known. 
And I think that's the challenge that all of us face in life. To choose to be part of a community where we can truly be known and know one another. And I think there's a certain security and simplicity to this life of hiddenness. Keeping relationships superficial enough so that we really never let people in to the deepest parts of our heart and what we're going through. But my prayer is that as a church, we can grow in community in that deepest of ways. Once we get through the socially awkward initial attempts at developing friendships, that what might happen by the work of the Holy Spirit among us is a deep and abiding spiritual friendship in which we can be naked and unashamed, fully known, fully exposed, and yet fully accepted because we, we in our relationships, are built on the foundation of God's acceptance and love for us. Let's pray.